Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the January 14, 2020 edition of Ask a Leader. Devin Phoenix, UCI political science professor, will return to take up his definitive and clarifying new book, The Anger Gap, How Race Shapes Emotion in Politics. It's published by Cambridge University Press. In the second last segment, members of the Orange County Women's March Planning Coalition will provide us with the scoop on the fourth annual Women's March in Santa Ana this Saturday, starting around 10. Keynote speaker, 45th Congressional District incumbent Katie Porter will take up some voting themes at the march. We'll be right back with Davin after a short break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Returning to Ask a Leader is my first guest, Davin Phoenix, UCI political science professor to take up his new book, The Anger Gap, How Race Shapes Emotion in Politics, published by Cambridge University Press. Davin's research focuses on black politics, political behavior, public opinion, political communication, urban politics, and mobilization of marginalized groups. He serves as co-director for the First Generation First Quarter Challenge, a peer mentoring program, is faculty co-founder and co-advisor for the Black Internationalists, a program preparing UCI's black students about experience of blackness abroad, was a 2016 Hellman Fellow, and received the Dean's Honorary for Teaching Excellence Award, the Distinguished Lecture Award from the Black Leadership Advancement Coalition, and the Chancellor's Award for Excellence in Fostering Undergraduate Research. And one of his colleagues at Social Sciences, Roxy Silver, when I was asking in her intro to tell me which awards meant the most, she said it's her teaching awards, and that's why I make a big deal out of mentioning these about Davin. He's killing it in that category, too. Davin completed his B.A. in political science at Christopher Newport University in Virginia, and both his graduate student in the Joint Degree Program for Public Policy and Political Science and Ph.D. at the University of Michigan. Davin joins me in studio. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Davin Phoenix. Thank you, Claudia. Always a pleasure to be here with you. Well, this is like a banner, a banner opportunity to talk about. I mean, it's been a work you've been working on for quite a while. But so I want to congratulate on an important, definitive, richly interdisciplinary work. That now I couldn't help but think it would have been nice. If we had this five years ago, <laughs> go get, girding ourselves for how to to mobilize for a fuller electoral participation. So we'll take that up, though, as we move into the later questions with 2020 presidential election season. So before I begin most of all my questions, I just want you to help me with terms that you prefer in referring to the central demographic of your book, African-American blacks. It seems to depend on the context in your book. Is there a rule of thumb or help me, help me be better on labels? So I tend to use the terms African-American and black people interchangeably or black American. I prefer using black as a descriptor rather than the label itself. So I will say something like uh, black people, black individuals, as opposed to uh, blacks. And I use African-American to switch things up because I'm talking about this group very often and I like to not be uh, too redundant. Uh, so beyond that, that's kind of the major considerations I make. I also recognize that the, I believe, Oxford Dictionary has recently designated uh, the black can be capitalized. So I will note as a potential warning, I did not capitalize uh, black and white. Uh, I noticed that. It depended. Work. And at, in prior versions, they were capitalized. And, you know, this all kind of went down before that official designation. And so I do recognize and hear the calls to capitalize and going forward in projects I can and will capitalize, but purely aesthetically, 
writing black and white so often and having them be capitalized, it was a bit jarring for me. And so I made that aesthetic choice uh, to stay lowercase for those and to often use African-American or when talking about other groups, you know, uh, Latinx, Asian-American. Obviously, those are capitalized. And so, you know, I'm still learning the best ways to communicate in a way that feels empowering and inclusive of the groups to which I'm speaking so that they feel as though they are subjects of the work and not objects of the work. So thank you for that. And this book, The Anger Gap, is it's been this is part of what you were working on in your dissertation. You've been you've been studying this and collecting data for quite a while. Talk to us about whether is there a sort of a personal sort of part of how you launched into this rather extensive project. Sure. Well, from my own perspective, I think all of our research comes from a very personal place, whether or not we are willing to be cognizant and acknowledge that. For me, this project began in earnest as early as 2012, perhaps perhaps even 2011. But the origins come from even a few years prior to that, when I was in my second year in graduate school at the University of Michigan, reading some of the new work on the power of communicating threats to people to mobilize them to take up political action. And I simply thought on the basis of this very compelling and convincing experimental work uh, that showed, you know, when we want to get people active over issues they care about, threatening them with what they stand to lose uh, is a better motivator than offering them an opportunity to gain something from their action. I simply question whether that applied as robustly to African-Americans, specifically other groups of color more broadly, especially those that do carry a level of racial consciousness and tend to perceive themselves as lower on the rungs of the socio-political totem pole. It seemed to me if you feel as though you haven't had much success within the political status quo, then threats of what you have to lose might not move you as much because you think I don't have much to lose, right? Hard to lose when I don't uh, have the status I want or don't kind of have the standing I want. Conversely, if you offer me and my group credibly something I stand to gain, maybe that can move the needle more because that signifies a greater change to my status quo, greater change to my status. So kind of tooling around with those kinds of ideas, I started to understand and learn more about the roles of emotions and maybe I thought that's the connective thread. Maybe I'm arguing that people of color might not be as responsive to those threats because for a myriad of reasons, they're not getting as angry over those threats. And without that anger, they might not feel the same uh, mobilizing intent or the same kind of inclination to act as white Americans who are responding to that threat with a sense of indignation. And as you describe really thoroughly for us, that the entitlement it runs through the white anger that mobilizes white voters in, in all kinds of political activity. Uh, and you, you brought up a point about the, the not have anything to lose and sort of the diminished sort of aspirations in, in the political process. Um, I guess uh, I want to move up a little bit earlier than I was going to bring up the, the zero sum. I, I don't know how consciously political analysts are viewing as this frame is shrinking the, how uh, the players in the political process can be included. The political players can improve their lot at the expense of the other, that that zero sum just was flashed, frozen, and it was repeatedly used in the 2016 debates. But so that zero sum, I'm, I'm going to run this through all sorts of uh, areas that you picked up in your book, because it's so rich, is that people like Fred Hampton, whose the anniversary of his death was last month, 50 years ago, he died. Fred Hampton understood that zero sum was a no-go and he kept trying to look for how to open it all the way up with solidarity themes and with coalition building. So there are there have been efforts, but they've been shut down to flip the zero sum. Sure, and I think what you're speaking to is that broader schism between some of the dominant ideologies kind of across the spectrum within of mainstream partisan politics and some of those more radical ideologies that have informed these different activist and insurgent movements 
and also even kind of, you know, schools of thought. And so when I hear you speak about the persistent framing of goods and benefits within U.S. politics as zero sum, we certainly see this across kind of the full range of political debates and ideas. I think currently to the conversations over uh, student loan debt forgiveness in the degree to which we see some very vitriolic responses to this idea saying, well, I paid off my loans. Where do I get my benefit? And I think this is another way of thinking about this uh, zero sum calculation as manifestation. The idea of, well, if I struggled through this, I don't want to see other people not struggle through this, right? This is another way we can think about this. And so when we consider the approach that Fred Hampton, who I cite a lot, without, a lot. throughout the book, right. yeah, um, in his approach to solidarity, he said, essentially, right, these different groups, particularly these racial groups kind of fighting for the scraps sitting at the table, that's exactly what this, you know, kind of the architects of this uh, racial capitalist system want us to do. Uh, but if we don't buy in to the idea that we're competing for these limited resources within our communities or within the broader polity, and we understand that we can fight to completely disrupt the system so that we have actual, full, equitable access to our fair share of the resources, then we can be truly uh, revolutionary and transformative. And I think that's what made uh, Hampton's concept of solidarity so threatening to the status quo. When you see the kinds of diverse groups he was bringing together, right? Not just uh, Black Panthers and Black Power adherents, right? But poor white Appalachian uh, farmers and miners and uh, Latinx uh, organizers like the Young Lords, the Puerto Rican gang turned political organization rooted out of Chicago, right? That's when we see the true transformative power. That's not a coalition that's built on the basis of traditional kind of partisan battlegrounds, right? That's the kind of coalition that's built on a radical reimagining of what's possible within politics. And so we want to grapple with, right, the kind of ideas and ideologies that motivate that type of politics because when we look at the strained efforts to turn out people that feel disaffected by the system and this cuts across race right maybe the conventional partisan politics isn't appealing to them in a way that those more radical ideas could be appealing to them and and i guess the zero sum it it has a way of reinforcing mobilizing the white anger in the political process that keeps that gap the where it is for sure. And so when I'm talking about white sense of expectation and entitlement, I'm thinking more broadly than the conventional way in which we talk about entitlements within politics, right? right? We're just kind of right. feeling entitled to a specific policy benefit, right? Or some kind of specific payout. No, I'm talking about a broader sense of entitlement to a fair and fully functional and justly operating political system, right? So trying to peel back the layers a bit. Uh, we have, you know, years of social science research that makes abundantly clear African-Americans uh, express much less satisfaction with politics and they are much more skeptical about the fairness of politics and they are much less trusting about political regimes and the political system itself. And so if you don't have that sense of trust, if you don't have that pervasive belief that the system works fairly, that's going to eat away at some of the indignation you could feel when you see outputs that are dissatisfying to you rather than respond, you know, with that indignation. I expect better from this. I expect more. You spawn with what I'm characterizing kind of a racialized sense of resignation. Well, I don't expect any better from this system. So it really doesn't get a rise out of me. And so that's what I'm talking about with that difference in entitlement with white people having a generally more trust and more sense of fairness when that system doesn't meet their objectives and goals they have license to get mad about that to feel indignant about that and to do something about that and you open in your book and i i had a chance to riff this off with other people who remember when the the saturday night live skit rolled out and there i don't know who wrote that skit i'd love to know who it was it had to be mainly chris rock and dave chappelle where they are showing the progressive white entitlement to they were distressed by the electoral outcome of November 2016. They were in a complete state. 
and the Chris Rock, Dave Chappelle, veterans of this kind of being at the the short end of the political stick, they were they 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 had you you gave us you served up your whole book with that that whole package of the interplay and the where and the progressives and I I can speak to a very personal understanding of that a relatability about that we have had a lot to learn we put our damn entitlement on hold uh, for, for understanding that dif- that disparity we were participating and complicit in right and i think that sketch that if people are not familiar with they should certainly view it on youtube it's a uh, election watch night party featuring dave Chappelle and chris rock as the kind of leads as the election returns are coming in and the white progressives at this party are becoming more and more despondent, uh, Dave Chappelle and Chris Rock's uh, characters are kind of keeping an even keel and remaining cool, calm, and collected throughout the night. And that speaks to that general sense of, well, you know, this isn't as shocking for us given our understanding of how politics works. Specifically, given her understanding of how politics is often working to the detriment of black people or working to counter the needs and demands of black people. And this isn't something that's simply rooted in kind of black narratives, right, or kind of a specific racialized lens. I mean, look at where black people are concentrated in the U.S., throughout the southeast, and look at where those states voted in 2016 uh, for the Republican candidate where most election years they're voting Republican. And so black people see a very clear disconnect between where they live and what outcomes they want from elections and what actually happens. So we're not having to invent out of whole cloth these kinds of dissatisfying markers. And it's critical for me to note that African-Americans are certainly not a monolithic group and there were a full range of emotional responses to the 2016 election, just like there are a full range of emotional responses to any kind of political phenomena. But at the same time, there is this distinct way in which African-Americans can tend to process the threats that emerge in their political environment. And that might not manifest in the same type of anger that we would expect based on our understanding of how white Americans might respond to the same threats and grievances. And because they're not a monolithic group, then the the way in which a tribe can mobilize an electorate, the way we're seeing it play out now among whites, even though the whites aren't, that the whites that are responding as a tribe, they're reinforcing their indignation at what is taking place, their anger. So um, talk about how then the, there, is, there isn't that tribe aspect to the African-American electorate and how that may also be an undermining of mobilization. Well, I guess it depends on how we're conceptualizing the idea of a tribe. I know. Because African-Americans are very much, um, do share many commonalities. And one thing that really distinguishes how African-American individuals are making political decisions is the idea of the black utility heuristic that Michael Dawson gave us in his kind of classic literature, Behind the Mule, which recently celebrated 25 years. He's arguing this pervasive sense of linked fate, which is the perception that my fate as a black individual is tied to the collective fate of African-Americans as a group and vice versa, creates this heuristic by which I say the interests of the group collectively are an effective proxy for my own individual interests. And so Dawson raises this idea to highlight why African-Americans can be uniformly supportive of the Democratic Party despite increasing variation in socioeconomic status, which might breed more variability in vote choice. Essentially, why don't we have more black Republicans when we have more black and middle class and even upper class folks than we have had before? Well, because we're still using an idea of group interests as a basis for decision making. And there's upcoming work by Cheryl Laird and Ismail White in their book, Steadfast Democrats, something to look out for this year. They've done some work that shows you know, a non-trivial proportion of that steadfast uniformity in black political preferences comes from social pressure, not just kind of true ideological beliefs. Right. And so in those so ways, there's... we can definitely think of African-Americans as a tribe, right? Because there's a strong sense of responsibility and obligation to advancing group interests. And so that might mean if there's a split in the road between what might 
personally benefit me and what might be better for the group, I might be steered towards what's benefiting the group. And so, of course, that disrupts some of our basic ideas about uh, individuals as rational actors in politics, simply looking to maximize self-interest. We have to think about those social pressures. We have to think about even the concepts of altruism, the concepts of, you know, kind of group solidarity. So in that way, we can think of, you know, African-Americans as tribe politics. But what isn't going to animate this tribe the way we can see um, the white tribe be animated, yeah. right, is those senses of perceived grievances and slights, right? We're not going to see the same sense of indignation that mobilizes electoral behavior. And that's... And mobilizing mean is also breaking it down. The choice could be not voting at all. It's not which which candidate. Exactly. But, and and that, that was a big deal in 2016. Yeah, and so when we do see African Americans, or when I, in my book, find African Americans indeed expressing anger or indignation, that indignation translates much more effectively to protest and system-challenging actions than it does electoral actions. And so even if people are looking to, which I would argue and do argue in the book they really do, kind of mainstream political figures, look to draw on that black grievance and draw on that anger, uh, it might not translate to more votes. Because when African Americans can't express that anger that anger is more directed at the system itself as opposed to any individual actors or regimes within that system and so you know replacing the people within that system does nothing to satiate the anger it's only by disrupting transforming revolutionizing that system itself that that anger is sated and so that's another dimension of this anger gap right the anger pushing white and black Americans in kind of two different directions in terms of what they want to do with it. And back to what Fred Hampton was talking about is not working to work inside the system, but working outside with an unabashed sort of owning the expression revolution as that the, and unabashedly and not uh, and, and intentionally an, er, an earnest use of the word revolution. For, for those of you who've just wondered who are we listening to today, my guest coming back to Ask Leaders, Davin Phoenix, UCI political science professor and author of his new book entitled The Anger Gap, How Race Shapes Emotion in Politics, published by Cambridge University Press. Well, so, yeah, there, let's talk about some of the candidates that had, I mean, Bill Clinton pulled out his saxophone. He He's the one presidential uh, incumbent that could sing Lift Every Voice. He, he But but he still played the zero-sum game, right right through the uh, mass incarceration, sorts of codification and uh, the border controls, as well as the, uh, the welfare reform. So we've got that. And then we have President Obama was not pushing the needle so much either. So talk about what they, they all, these two only went so far in bringing to minimize that anger gap in what those two offered. Sure. And what's really critical when we look at Clinton and when we look at Obama and even other kind of Democratic candidates and incumbents going back to Jimmy Carter, what is often moving the needle in terms of black vote isn't the ways in which these figures are kind of animating their anger towards the other side. It's more about how they're generating a sense of pride in the home team or a sense of hope in the home team. So I'm seeing African-Americans be more influenced and more effectively mobilized than their white powders and counterparts by these positive emotions of hope in certain contexts and particularly pride, which uh, is effective across more contexts. And so I just want to note something about kind of the bounds that we see Democratic figures like Clinton and Obama Um, kind of adhere to they're not activating or legitimizing that black anger I'm arguing by kind of looking at some of the ways in which they're speaking to black audiences compared to how they speak to white audiences you so well explain that in the book yeah so not to belabor the point because people should buy the book and read it yeah well no there's so much to look at (laughs) but yeah I think it's worth pointing out uh, the ways in which those kinds of playing both sides of the fence certainly was read and interpreted astutely by African-Americans. So I want to highlight the late political scientist Linda Faye Williams in her really incredible book, The Constraint of Race, makes the really not often touted enough observation that Clinton's share of the black vote in the 1992 election was lower than we might have expected compared to other Democratic candidates. So black people did indeed 
penalize Clinton a bit for that playing both sides of the fence, for his kind of leaving the campaign trail to oversee the execution of a mentally challenged black inmate and for kind of his remarks challenging uh, Jesse Jackson's Rainbow Coalition and or Sister challenging Suja. Sister, yeah, right, yeah. Sorry, Sister Soldier sure. and some of these other and saying, you know, we're going to end welfare as we know it, which we know is kind of this implicit racial code. Right. There was pushback amongst African-Americans for that. And we gradually saw him be able to kind of lock in that support due not just to kind of rhetoric shifts, but really due to some of the policy advances that black people were able to benefit from in ways that we hadn't seen black people benefit from. And so with Barack Obama, we also saw, you know, these concrete efforts to uh, distance himself from the perception that black people are that he's going to be beholden to black interests and my uh good friend and former colleague floor stevens has an upcoming book talking about this very kind of incentive that black democratic figures have to signal uh that they will not be beholden to black uh, votes and so barack obama really was effective in using that strategy and so i think that those kinds of rhetorical um machinations do work to signal to African-Americans we might not really have much substantive advancing of our interests by this regime compared to any other regime. And so they can still maintain a very strong sense of community and racial pride in the symbolic victory represented by Barack Obama. But as research has shown us, black people didn't necessarily feel greater optimism about getting their needs met under Obama than they did under other regimes. And so I think that speaks to the complex way in which African-Americans, you know, perceive the political playing field. They can be very proud of Obama and express a great deal of defensiveness about Obama when they feel he's being attacked unfairly, both by the right and by the left. At the same time, they can have very tempered expectations about what to receive and have very strong and very specific critiques about the ways in which Obama, like other Democratic vanguards, has not, you know, put his money where his mouth is in terms of responding directly to the specific demands of African-Americans in a manner akin to how you see Obama and other vanguards responding directly to other specific uh, communities, whether it's the LGBTQ community, the uh, Latinx community, going to those uh, folks directly and saying, here's what you expect. Here's what we're going to do for you. So in your book, we're going to entice readers, listeners to pick up your book and you'll, you'll t- let them t- in your book, you'll let them come to the how you bring up some of the current candidates for president, how they've also hedged those bets. It's an ongoing process. So I guess in the interest of time, I want to talk about how tech giveth and it taketh away to some extent you know, moving us through, there's that perhaps this gap can be dissipating, perhaps, but Davin, I am a little freaked out about how micro-targeting, how much of an inroad that made in undermining black voter mobilization, and it's only more astute now. So I, I didn't notice that in the book, but that may be something you talk about in your lectures when you're talking about the book, but how do you feel about that sophisticated means for manipulating the voting public. Well, I think we're beginning to have a better concrete understanding of just how effective those kinds of micro-targeting messages can be at uh, exploiting those kinds of that skepticisms right, yeah. and resignation carried by African-Americans and, you know, kind of weaponizing it to ensure that turnout is even more weakened. So a friend of mine, Chris Stout, and a uh, co-author of his, forgive me for forgetting his name, uh, have some kind of ongoing research that demonstrates when you do signal that the Democratic Party is itself racially prejudiced, that can depress turnout amongst African-Americans. And so I think that really squares the kinds of messages that we saw Russian troll farms producing for black audiences, right? This party doesn't actually care about you. This party's racially problematic. And micro-targeting is sort of going... It's sort of a personal kind of reach. And some of us can't, there's not a larger conversation about micro-targeting if you don't know what that micro-targeting is about, unless you're, unless you're the recipient of that. So it's, it sort of isolates that resigned voters' behavior. Sure. And that's so, that is so toxic. to critical, the right. mo- so, so critical. Well, here, we haven't mentioned... Jesse Jackson, well, you did a little bit, and you talked about how his two presidential bids that 
how much of a needle they, they could push, pull, as well as he tapped into the pride aspect when you talked about all these different emotions in racial politics and presidential politics. But I, I got to call out Jesse Jackson in 1986 in the off-year election. He did mobilize. There must have been some kind of gap that was closed because he did flip the leadership, the the majority party in the U.S. Senate. And if he had not done that, there would be a different Supreme Court going into the 2000s, you know, from 86 on. So that made your case about the that other example there about the, the pride factor. Well, so agency and anger are that gap. It's a you're taking up at near the end of your book. And we want people to to read the book, find this the anger gap there get their own copy but you you are going to talk a little bit about the you do in your book the latinx and the asian american pacific islanders there's a different response there and we're going to see some very interesting work coming still out of uc riverside kartik ramakrishnan and he's breaking it down so we know where all those that there's it's not monolithic and so they they can answer there's a very entitled sector he wants us to keep an eye on and so it's that it reinforces your point about entitlement absolutely drives mobilization opens up the anger gap that indignation there so let's talk about where's this gap going to be in 2020 without giving too much away sure well i think that these ideas that we've been discussing I want people to appreciate that yes. we do understand these are dynamic and not static and bound by different temporal, political, geographic contexts. And, and the so, demographics like age and gender. For sure. We're watching it now. So I try to look robustly at this racial anger gap, cross-cutting identities of gender and age, kind of broken down very simply as under 30 versus 30 and above and educational attainment, right? Whether or not you have a college degree. And so I do find that in the 2016 data, black people under the age of 30 don't really exhibit an anger gap compared to their white counterparts under 30. And I think that's instructive. Yeah. And that's not simply a life cycle effect because in the previous years that I have to work with, going back to 1980, I do indeed find that black people under 30 exhibit an anger gap compared to white people under 30. So it looks like there's something specific about this particular cohort of younger black folks or young black adults. And gender, she the people is giving us a big demonstration of of clout among African American voters. Right. And so we see some minimal uh, differences when I look at black women and black men in terms of uh, expressed anger and how that anger is translating to action. Interestingly enough, in the 2016 data, I find angry white women uh like more likely to protest than angry white men. And I think that maps on with the understanding of the era of resistance and the women's marches. And I think it maps on with the idea of black women wondering about their actual fitness and about their actual representation within this broader um, women's movement that's kind of manifesting right now because black women are not necessarily more prone to participate in protests when they're angry in 2016. So they're kind of, uh, there's this gap there across uh, race. And so it's not to say black women aren't participating, but the same outlets might not be there. I mean, black women have been the vanguard of all the activist movements we're talking about throughout history, whether they're kind of acknowledged as such. And so we can think about opportunity costs and opportunity bounds on that participation, whether it could be even more um, robust black women's activism if they had more of a seat at the table. Well, Devin, speaking of opportunity costs, I, I'm really earnestly interested in what you think about the anger gap competing with other existential threats like the climate threat. Sure. So we can think about the different manifestations of threat and the different types of emotions they animate. So okay. Bethany Albertson and Shana Gadarian have written extensively and researched extensively about the kinds of existential threats to life and limb that can shape political behavior so they're thinking specifically about threats like terrorism that can invite a great deal of fear and uncertainty and anxiety right what does that anxiety do for the general public how does it 
create a closing of ranks or shape um, our willingness to consider new information, our willingness to consider newly who is insiders and who are outsiders. And so when I think of climate change, is it something that can invite indignation or is it something that invites a great sense of disempowerment and alienation and anxiety? If it's the latter, then it's not surprising, perhaps, that we're seeing people that seem to be disengaged or checked out or kind of blissfully unaware of the stakes of this crisis because it feels overwhelming. I feel powerless. How do I attribute the source of this threat? How do I have any kind of control over it? And so when we're framing people's responsibility to engage in different practices, we have to understand how they can feel empowered to feel as though these actions make a difference. We also have to understand whether we can shift the burden so that people don't feel, yeah, I'm recycling and I'm driving less, but it doesn't matter if we're still like, you know, just getting pulled over and uh, we have an accelerated police encounter. Sure. Right. Or if like, you know, we're still producing uh, carbon based, you know, stuff at this great rate. Right. Like, so how can I as an individual do something if the institutions and organizations and businesses are still getting off the hook? So we're going to keep sales brisk with the anger gap. And I want for people to take a look at where you close with some stellar up-and-coming leader they've been at it for a while i'm not i'll just mention nina turner who's on twitter sphere she's getting confused with tina turner and that that's it's an interesting reaction there so own it own it nina and stacy abrams we're hearing more and more from her she's really very strategic and you talk about where she's headed and i don't know how chokwe lumumba Lumumba. jr in jackson mississippi so so you have a lot to say about them as you close. So quickly, the last, just like the last question is, who most animates African-American activism running in the 2020 now, who's still left in, uh, running for president? Well, the current crop uh, that is remaining. We're, we're minus which, one since yesterday. For right? sure, right? So obviously we're kind of steadily losing all the non-white candidates. But I think if you look at, Across age ranges, Bernie Sanders, I think, still maintains a large kind of uh, enthusiastic support amongst black people, I believe, under the age of 30 or maybe 25. So we're looking at that enthusiasm. That's important because that's a group that I found has the least anger gap. And so that could be instrumental. The key is, can he broaden that support to black people over 30, who, of course, going to be of the group more likely actually to vote? Right. Because you've, you've talked a bit about him earlier in the book about how he's hedged those bets. Well, Davin. I really appreciate your taking the time, telling us, um, expanding our thinking, both in, in your book and giving us a chance to hear more, extend the, the points that you're making in the book. Thank you so much for being on Ask a Leader. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was Davin Phoenix, and he's the UCI professor of political science and author of an important, useful new book entitled Anger Gap, How Race Shapes Emotions and Politics, published by Cambridge University Press. We'll be right back after a very short station break with representatives of the Women's March Planning Coalition. We'll see how angry they are for the fourth annual Orange County Women's March. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My next guests are representatives of the 4th Annual Orange County Women's March Planning Coalition. MC of the march is Adele Tagaloa and Nicole Ramirez, Vice President of Communications and Donor Relations at Planned Parenthood Orange County and San Bernardino Counties. And a silent party, but with us here is... Charles Barfield of the Orange County Employees Association. They joined me, all of three of them, in studio. Welcome to Ask a Leader, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Appreciate being here. Okay, well, we'll get voice prints here shortly. So let's go to the overarching theme of the fourth annual Women's March this Saturday, January 18th. Yeah. Nicole. Absolutely. So the overarching theme is March Today, Vote Tomorrow. So obviously all of the women's marches are really centered around the fact that 
women's rights or human rights. So we're always marching toward that. But especially this year, as we're moving toward 2020 and it's a very important election, we want to ensure that everybody understands the importance of voting, that you're registered to vote, and that you make your voice heard and get out there and vote in 2020. And the theme is also the objective is what you want to get. So what do you want to get done? Are you going to be registering people to vote? Are you uh, showing them, uh, talking about the, the voting, some of the voting centers, some there, because that's, that's where you are, Adele. You've, you've, you've got part of one foot in the um, registrar voters functionary, right? Um, yes. So in, in my daily life, I... Every day I work at the elections office for the county of Orange, but on Saturday I am a obviously a woman. You take you put on a different cape. Exactly, and that's the cape I wear almost twenty four seven to ensure that democracy is valued. And we want to make sure on Saturday people are aware you don't have to wait till election day to cast your ballot. We are voting very differently here in Orange County. Every single registered voter. 1.6 million will get a vote by mail ballot. We're going. We're going to cover that. Oh, okay. Not Neil a problem. Kelly's here February fourth, but I just wanted to perfect. That's so great and news. I'm out, I went to the mock election. I oh. just sh- shook them down last Tuesday night just to see how many things they hadn't answered yet, and there's just a few things. So, but we'll go to that. But perfect. this is all about the march having yes. you today. So let's talk about. You've got. A 40 participating organization roster. Talk about that. Nicole? Yeah, this is one of my favorite parts about the Women's March. Uh, so the Planning Coalition, we're a local volunteer grassroots coalition of individuals and organizations. Uh, we're dedicated to promoting inclusivity and equity. And I think the, the perfect demonstration of this is, as you were saying, Claudia, there are 40 organizations on the Planning coalition so between you know hb huddle arab american caucus lgbtq center orange county women's health project planned parenthood um, a broad array of voices to ensure that um, everybody's voice is represented and heard and there are speakers that now actually i'm just going to run this by some people were overwhelmed with the number of speakers last year and you must have heard Maybe them two years ago <laughs> two years ago yeah, we absolutely we absolutely so i think you know the very first year um to be con- completely honest we were we were all trying to figure out after their, uh, the 2016 election what what were we going to do we knew the women's march was going to happen and so we brought this group of uh, that was organizations quick. together yeah. yes very quick. everybody all yes. over the world quick yes. And we were trying to figure out, are we going to go to L.A.? Are we going to San Diego? What are we going to do? And I think that's when we uh, decided, no, you know what? Orange County, we need to stay here, um, show our power and show that we're united. That's right. And so that's exactly what we did. And we uh, thought there'd be about 5,000 people coming out to that march. (laughs) And so when 20,000 people showed up the first year, it was amazing. And I think uh, it just kind of grew from there. And so... You know, we have no idea what to expect, how many people are coming out, but um, we're incredibly excited about kind of the feedback that we've been getting. The the first March was trying to figure things out, I think. The second March, we tried probably to have too many speakers, and we heard that feedback, as you were saying. And so this March, we're definitely streamlining it. So we'll have Adele is going to be our MC. We have uh, Katie Porter. Uh, Congresswoman Katie Porter. The incumbent for the 45th Congressional District, which is where this station is a part. She's going to be out there speaking. She's been a wonderful champion. Um, And then also we have a young woman, a teenager. Kaylin. I see one name. Is she go by, she a rock star already? She just goes by Kaylin? She is phenomenal. (laughs) She really is. It's Danelle. I think it's how you pronounce her last name. She's fantastic. So she'll be also talking about why she's marching. And And her affiliation? She is... A young activist. Okay, so she's not with like Sunrise or with the. She's the, with herself. The, okay, <laughs> she's, 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 she yes. she will become a movement here. As, she as, uh, she with will her. be. Yes, I guarantee it. Okay, and you're going to offer some entertainment. So I guess this would be an intentional, some kinds of mobilizing, heartrending songs and artwork. And what what that's are you going to present? Way to describe it. Yeah, that's a great way. Well, we can work on communications together, Nicole. <laughs> we have a future together. <laughs> Well, there's about 14 different organizations uh, who will be, as you were saying, kind of either doing performances or art installations, but they'll be within the march. So they'll be, you know, um, going throughout the march for entertainment and to to send a message. So 
we've got different groups like Planned Parenthood will um, have one, LGBTQ Center will have one, um, and so and OC Native Voices and Indigenous Women Rising. Will they also, will begin. They, they bring in the whole ceremony. Blessing, correct. They'll, they're going to start everything with the blessing, but they'll also. Um, have a performance throughout the march as well so that should you know keep everybody excited as we're marching the two miles throughout downtown santa Ana. before we're marching though while we're still speaking now a traditional ritual of gatherings like this there is an acknowledgement of elected officials or candidates is there going to be that kind of peace to the yes we're currently working on that correct you're working on that so they, they'll they'll be there. They're not going to go to... Uh, I mean, the, there were a lot of people that went to L.A. the first year from Orange County because we weren't sure what was going to happen down here. So uh, but so I'm sure you're pulling more and more of those Orange County affiliates, residents, out of the L.A. gathering, and, and it's, it's getting larger. How many were at the march last year, roughly speaking? We had a... So I think the good downtown thing, Santa Ana. Yeah. So I think I'm not sure exactly off the top of my head how many people showed up there. How uh, for the as far as elected officials. However, I think oh, no. I mean piece, the whole both the elected officials. But I'm I'm wanting to make sure we covered that they they are going to be there. People can interact with them. I mean they're yes. super accessible. But just generally the number of people that turn out the the whole population of the march. Oh, the whole population in March last year we had fifteen thousand people. Wow, that's keeping it. It's I mean and amazing the fact that we were able to get fifteen thousand people up on early on a Saturday morning when it's cold in January out there marching in Orange County. I think that's a huge accomplishment. Well, let's talk since we're talking about a big group here. I'd like for you to let us know the best way we can be good attendees. <laughs> There's a lot of logistics. There's traffic issues. And for people that need accommodations, it can get up closer. But how is this going to work? What do you recommend people arriving? It starts at 10, but you want people there before. And where do you, how do you want them to get there? We would like to, for people to carpool to bring as many friends as they can in one car. So we This could, is Adele speaking. Yes. That's um, this way we could leave that carbon footprint a little smaller and we could encourage more people to attend. The earlier you get there, you could really get that best view of the seating when you do see the speaker speak. Um, you There is parking along the route. Check out our website that will show you exactly where to park your cars, um, bus transportation. But the best key is to really carpool and ride share with each other there were buses like yes. the first year there were all these major major yeah a lot transport. of organizations um they are, still maybe are absolutely yes. yeah gathering people and bringing busing everybody in which i think is so exciting it has to be so much fun on that bus getting everybody together feel that you feel the excitement yeah. i mean this is a big election year and this i mean we don't we can't sit back anymore and let other people vote for our choices we have to continue to speak out and cast our ballot. That's where our voices are going to be heard at that ballot box. So it's exciting to see so many young people, so many, all genders, all ages to come out and really stand and, and really say we're going to stand together and make a change this year. And I, I don't know, I didn't expect to bring this plug up, but, you know, it, showing up at these kinds of things, there is an, a, a massive amount of creativity with the kinds of posters people put together. Yes. Anybody have any favorites? Um, I mean, there. Uh, let's my, let that in the back of your head. You can think about some of that. But I, I mean, I. I, don't I know think if I can say them on the radio. Uh, so I will. Oh, silent. that's right. There are some. There's some anatomical references yes. about uh, keeping that. And so I don't know if those hats are still coming back out here. I, I finally, yeah, found. So um, that's that's another dimension to that is that interacting with everybody and seeing what kind of clever things and the families you're uh, we had you had families turning out and the whole stroller yeah. brigades and things like that you so. saw moms pushing their children grandparents multi-generational it was very exciting last year i was along the route i wasn't marching i was just encouraging people imagine that <laughs> and just seeing so many different what was exciting was not just only the age but the gender they were male and, and they were all female, but you had males there supporting my husband supporting me. And so is my, my son. They're coming out Saturday. So it was really exciting to see that. It gets it gets you motivated. How can you not cast your ballot? Absolutely. It's so empowering to see all of these people, 15,000 people coming together, yes. standing shoulder to shoulder, um, all working together kind of towards this common goal of social justice, equity. It's it's a be- it, honestly, it's a beautiful thing. So I think. An important detail that 
needs to be underlined, reiterated. I guess this is an act, this group knows what's going on, but that March 3rd is said every other sentence, so people know it's it's coming. And I don't know if there is a, if anybody will be bringing to that, to the forum about how important primaries are in the state of California and and that the how this plays a role in what we're served up for our choices in the general election in November so that's now so tell us Nicole and Adele do you do you give speakers a few marching orders for what they're going to deliver how how does that work let's just go behind the scenes and see how how much (laughs) how much uh, do you wield and what you want to get done when you put together a rally like this well, I think the planning coalition gets together and then discusses who's going to be speaking. And again, we're trying to keep it very short. So we have Adele, uh, Katie Porter, and then our our young teen. So it's it's very short. And okay. to be honest, these are incredible women. So there wasn't much that we had to talk to them about. They got it right away that the importance of voting, this idea of unity, this idea of inclusivity. Um, so yeah, they. I think they're going to be on it. It's going to be wonderful. So I know it'll be hard for you to get to read what my guest earlier on the show, the anger gap he's talking about. The more anger, the more mobilization of a Mm. a voting public. I mean, in in terms of voting, volunteering, all kinds of things. So the the anger gap is actually your you figure in there. The march is talked about in Avon Phoenix's book. So it's a there is a big fat through line with this. Well, if uh, do you have anything more you want? listeners to know about being ready for Saturday, 10 o'clock. Just to come out, bring your friends, bring as many people as you can, because this is our opportunity here in Orange County to stand together and to be excited and see so many other people around you. You're not alone. We are not alone in this fight. We are not alone, this primary or this general. We will stand together and make a change. And we will continue that change from the 2016 election. It's going to flow. I get so excited. I mean, obviously, <laughs> but it is because it's not just for my generation, but before me, they, well, women fought for our right to vote. You did. Oh, no, I, well, yeah. no, I didn't go back that far, but I mean, in terms of being yes. active, in terms yes. of some of the policy that'll be discussed that some of us have been at it yes. for we need to continue only that. half a century. So, <laughs> and we want, we want the next generation to my daughters and You're their daughters. Yours. Yes. And, and they, it is something we have to continuously speak out on. Well, I want to thank all three of you for coming on Ask a Leader today, the representatives of the 4th Annual Orange County Women's March Planning Coalition, MC of that march, here's Adele Tongaloa, Tongaloa. <laughs> Nicole Ramirez, Vice President of Communications and Donor Relations at Planned Parenthood, and the silent participant, <laughs> Charles Barfield, Yay. offering his support at Orange County Employees Association. The the announcement is that there will be a march going on on this Saturday, and that's my wrap. Next week, I'll have on Jose Trinidad Castaneda, climate action organizer who's taken over for Robin Ganahl, and then the first of my California primary candidate coverage. Some of them may be actually floating around the march. This will be the incumbent Dr. Ken Williams running for another term on the Orange County Board of Education one of the many candidates running for positions on that board they have levers folks and they do pull them talk with you next week thank you everyone for listening